Welcome to Dyslexia Unbounded at Armstrong. In this series, we will share how we educate and support students with dyslexia and related learning differences, providing tips and expertise relevant to any family or educator wishing to know more. Charles Armstrong School is a West Coast leader in serving students with dyslexia in grades two through eight. Students with dyslexia and neurodivergent learners in general often have bumpy educational experiences in which they have felt either ostracized or uncomfortable or marginalized. Creating a safe and inclusive space for, that, for these students is paramount to their success in school and beyond. Today, I'm speaking with our fabulous Director of Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging, Annie Fon, um, and we're going to talk about DEIB frameworks um, in the dyslexic spaces. Welcome, Annie. Hi. <laughs> Annie, do you just want to introduce yourself and tell everyone what you do here i'm strong yeah hi everyone i am annie Kwan. my pronouns are she they what that means is that i love both uh when people refer to me uh, using she her hers or they them theirs um and i am the director of diversity equity inclusion belonging this is my second year here in McNan, and i would say what do i do here i was strong um i think high level uh, i really just make sure that um diversity equity inclusion are our core part of what we do here at every single level. So really consulting, uh, coming up with strategic plans and um, providing support where I can to make sure that everybody from our neurodivergent students to our faculty, staff, and family partners all feel uh, a sense of belonging in our community here. Awesome. Um, and for those of you who are not watching but are listening, Annie is showcasing our Pride t-shirts. Uh, we march in the San Francisco Pride Parade every year, and our students actually design this wonderful part shaped with all the words that make them pride, make them proud of themselves. So just want to give a shout out to you for that. <laughs> all right. So question about neuro being neurodivergent and being able to talk about DEIB. Why is that important for individuals that are neurodivergent to embrace their identity and, and have those discussions? Yeah. Oh man. Or we start with that. I don't. Um, well, I think I want to start with just even how we think about language here. Armstrong, or when we're thinking about the term dyslexia, like when the word dyslexia is still not even used in the DSM five or in many schools, and it is so empowering for students to have a word like dyslexia or these other words, uh, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, ADHD, to name both their experiences and their identity, right? Um, so that's like one thing, it's like, there's so much power in language and being able to own everything that comes up who you are, uh, two, we were talking earlier this morning about the difference between calling dyslexia learning disability and a learning difference. And so when it comes to the EIB work, it's important to actually hold both of those truths. Um, one, that it's just a learning difference, that there's nothing like, you know, you know, lesser about you. Um, but it is just that, you know, for our dyslexic students, it is a different way of being and learning and seeing the world. At the same time, it's important to also name that it's a disability because our society is not constructed in a way that is accessible for folks with dyslexia. Um, and that means that life is always going to be challenging, but not because of anything inherent, but because society just makes it really hard to be dyslexic, right? We look around and, and everything um, involved and, and writing. So yeah. I think it's important to to hold both of those names and, and name the power of words. I know that's what the EIB work is. And yeah. similarly, even the word 
neurodivergent is like a relatively new term, right? Um, neurodiversity, but there are different ways of being before people would just say, you're disabled and there's something wrong with you. Now we're saying, nope, it's just another way to be. And being divergent is actually a good thing rather than always following, you know, kind of true paths. And how do you think that translate that ability for our students or students who learn differently, able to internalize that and some of the struggles they face with that? How do you think that translates to understanding about other identities? Yeah. Um, I think that it, I mean, it's, it's both just in through their lived experience and literally their, their brains uh, for our students who are neurodiverse, which is all of them. Um, studies have shown that they have greater senses of empathy, right? And I think that's through both recognizing their own challenges and being like, wow, other people struggle just like me, but it's also literally in their neural wiring that they have a great sense of empathy and capacity for others. Um, so I just think that's really impressive when it comes to our students. Uh, and it makes it in some ways easier to talk about other ways in which people are marginalized, whether that's through race, through gender, through um, other types of wearing differences or physical disabilities, religious differences, et cetera, right? Um, I think they can get the, well, well, society has made it hard for me to exist and that's not nothing wrong with me. That's just something we have to name and then something that maybe we can change or learn to develop strategies. And that goes to Fagum. You've talked about this with our faculty and staff, but advice for anyone who's listening or watching, teachers, parents, maybe students, that dyslexia is you can't identify it just by looking at somebody and sort of these hidden identities that don't manifest overtly. How do you think that takes some like how are what recommendations would you have for teachers who are wanting to explore that with their students? Yeah. Um in a bigger context, like in a classroom or at home. And then for exploring these identities. I mean, you said it, you know, there are many um, activities online around hidden identities or invisible identities or exploring identities on bit with surface. I remember there are simple things where, you know, you choose one through six, like, like uh, what are they, sheets on a roll of cozy yep. upper, and then with each of them, you have to share, like, one identity or fact about yourself. Um, I've done activities where... It's like, I want you to name three things that people could see about you and then three things that people might not be able to see. There's a classic activity called that if you really knew me mm-hmm. exercise, right? If you really knew me and took the time, you would know that. I mean, those are all really great ways to go about it. With caveats, of course, that when we're asking about um, people's hidden identities, they may be hiding them for, or they may not be visible for a reason. Or, so we want to make sure that there's trust and also that we are not expecting it thumbs up because sometimes folks aren't ready in a yeah. yeah, that's important to acknowledge for sure. And you, I, I think it's important to let everyone know that you can start doing this work in second grade. We have second graders talking about this. So they, and even kindergarten, we can do it. Um, what are some projects that you've been working with teachers on that you feel like you're really proud of or you feel like the students have really learned from and and gained knowledge more knowledge about DEIB? Yeah. Well um for example, this slide is October dyslexia awareness month and I'm just really impressed with the way in which Armstrong has been doing in any ways DEIB work much longer than the EMB is at a term right in schools or in this country. Um, because by looking at like a marginalized identity like students with dyslexia, you already had to do all the work that came with it, right? Recognizing their struggles, where that was coming from, things like that. Um, but in recent years, I just 
so proud of our, like, you know, the theme for our project this year is Dear Dyslexia. And I was just starting to read some of the um, stories that students are trying to reflect on in order to prepare for this postcard project that we're doing. And students are so authentic, you know, and I think there's there's a lot of pride to be taken in that and like the degree of safety it takes for students to feel safe enough to say like, to dyslexia sometimes, like, I just wish you weren't part of my life because this is so hard. But, you know, that's also part of the journey as much as dear dyslexia, you are a superpower and I see things no one else sees in this world and that is so cool, right? And it's important that we learn how to hold two things to be true at the same time and the fact that our students have to do it and can do it and articulate it is just like amazing. It is amazing. It's it's wonderful that you're able to try and introduce these things and because we're basically one affinity space for that. Yep. Um, everyone on campus, because we're experts, because we understand how to navigate working with these students, I think that also lends itself to successful projects. I want to go into like affinity space more. So, you know, as I mentioned, all our students here have learning differences. What do you, what is your view on other affinity spaces and like how you work that into the nuance of neurodiversity? Yeah. Um, like you said, it's amazing that Armstrong is a, a affinity group for 200 and like 30 something, 240 kids. Um, because, you know, the statistic you often are sharing as director of admissions is that one in five students have dyslexia. And so that means that they're lucky, it's going to feel like one in five with their classroom. But sometimes they may all be the only one, right? In a class of 20, 30, um, feeling that way. But then they come here. Every single kid has dyslexia and there's something really special when on top of that you add a dyslexic adult. We have amazing dyslexic teachers here, of course, speak into that experience and um, can be like, oh yeah, me too. Oh yeah, me too. I used to feel like I was the only one and then I'd have that. And so some other ways in which we do affinity groups here are, um, you know, the gender and sexuality lines in middle school. We had a lower school prime group last year, which led to this little chart for and, you know, we're, we're looking into all sorts of affinity peers based on what people need. I think it, it always starts with that question of, am I the only one? And if I'm like, especially when I was out there, who's also going through this. And an affinity group is always an amazing opportunity to learn, oh, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. Like, and even if someone else's experience so that totally aligned with mine, they, they've gone through something very similar to what I've gone through based on this part of who I am. Sure. And just following up on that for teachers or even family or anyone, really, if you want to create an affinity space, but because we are in an edu- you know, a school, what recommendations would you have if someone wanted to start that in a school that doesn't necessarily cater to students with dyslexia? Yeah, but it's always by identifying need and having it be internal rather than saying, because the moment that we lead it to prejudice or stereotypes is what we've decided all of you are this, have this in common, therefore you need this, as opposed to flipping it and being like, hey, what's your identity? What's your experience? Do you have questions? What do you need? Right? And building that trust for anyone, whether that's adults or students, to to just be like, oh, no, you could think it's not a big deal, but sometimes I've just noticed that I am the only person, you know, I grew up as uh, the only Asian-American student with Asian-American parents in my whole little school and then my high school until my sister came along. 
that we were very regularly growing up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, the only ones, right? So I remember being 16 and going to the Student Diversity Leadership Conference, and that was the first time I'm about to sit down with other 16-year-old Vietnamese-American kids also going to independent schools. And I was like, wow, we have a lot in common. And there's something about how organic those conversations felt that was very important to me as opposed to like all of you are Asian and all of you are going through that. So for me to be able to articulate, well, yeah, I've gone through something and spontaneous if someone else has gone through something very similar. Um, so I think for folks who are just starting out, don't be prescriptive is the large one. And um, I think be willing to be curious and experiment. So for me, it's like, rather than being like, we're doing groups and we're weeding this regularly, let's just have an event and have some food and make it open invitation, see who comes. And then once people share their stories, then we'll be able to identify some people are that we do this all the time. Other people are like, I like this, but how do I come all the time? Like every now and then would be great. And other people might be like, not for me. And all of that is completely okay. okay. Yeah. When you brought up events, I was thinking about like the events that we have here and just the way kids just love parties. They love events. They love things to do. Right. Um, so I'm just curious, since it's your second year here, was there anything that like really just made you smile or like laugh out loud that a kid just like kids just surprised you? Um, it could be in a celebration, it could be in a classroom, but I was just thinking about events because that's when yeah. kids kind of usually come out of their show. Totally. Well, again, to succeed wearing it's fun, the phone is amazing. And I think about, you know, when our retired, recently retired PE teacher shared the stories and the ways in which you do that, right? But like, yeah, me too. Something that else I love. That is, I think, a three-year tradition now that I'm from is the Pride Parade yeah. that we do both just through San Francisco, but our Waffle one, because it was so joyful last year to have, you know, everyone's wearing rainbow and Armstrong gear, and they've got, we bring those stickers all over, and there are bubbles, and they're fusing, and we're decorating a golf cart, we're all just running around and chasing it, like, a simple thing that really, truly felt celebratory, and, um, just so that it should be easy to be ourselves around each other. So those are some recent highlights of celebrations. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thank you for answering some questions, having this dialogue with me. We do have a funny outro that we've been doing with our guests, and we've been asking the guests before to ask some random questions to the following guests. Okay, so the past guests that we have, Laura and Christy, they asked if you could have one sense of people you know, there's five senses. Okay. They're not six senses. I learned this. Um, I don't know. I'm dating myself, but the Sixth Sense movie, you know, okay, that doesn't exist. Five senses. If you can only have one of them, which one would it be? Oh, interesting. And why? This is so funny because I was talking to our amazing speech language therapist. So they were sharing with me about how there's actually eight purposes. Oh, and based on its name. On that, yeah. So he's uh, But we're going to go oh, get the by. Okay, let's. And I think if I had to, well, yeah, I mean, those three are, I think, vestibular, interoception, and oh, wow. proprioception. Okay. More well, internal. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, okay. And you tell whether you're hungry or not, what's your sense of balance, like, you know, things like that. So that was the thing I learned. But if I only could have one sense, uh, I think I would cry if I lost my sense of taste. So I'm going to go with that one. I really love eating and drinking and sharing community moments through food. And so, yeah, I think that would be the one. I'd always appreciate your recommendations for each food. I think a lot. <laughs> As you should. Um, okay, so now we need a question for our our next guest. Okay. 
Um, my question for the next person is, and maybe also for you, and you could have a practical superpower, what would that be? So I define a practical superpower as, you know, typically people are like, you know, flight, invisibility, whatever. It's just a superpower that if you had it, isn't super out of the ordinary, but it wouldn't really make a big difference in your life, you know? So I've heard people be like, the ability to always be on time. Mm. Or um, for me, the ability to sleep exactly the amount that I want. Oh. If I could take like a 10 minute power nap in the middle of the day, okay. that would be amazing. So th- that's my practical secret. That is wonderful. And that is a very existential question that I have to think about. <laughs> and I will answer the next time for our, with our next guest. Um, again, thank you, Annie. It was wonderful having you here. Um, please check. Thank you for listening or watching Dyslexia Unbounded. Please check us out on all our socials and I'll see you soon.